Well, hello, everyone. This is Scott with Centuries and Saints. Thank you again so much for tuning in for this special Holy Week edition of the podcast. Now, today is Holy Saturday, or as it's sometimes known, Silent Saturday. And so I thought it would be fun to release a special one-off episode here where we take a look at the history behind this day, Holy Saturday, the day after Good Friday, but before Easter Sunday. Now, like most of these episodes, this was from a radio program that I did at my previous church back in Southern Oregon, and I decided to leave this one mostly unedited. So you'll hear some references to K-Apple, which is the radio station of that church, and I highly recommend it, kaplradio.com. Great church, great radio station. Still going strong today. Uh, But I also had a really good friend of mine and co-worker at the church, uh, my good friend Colin Redmond. And so he joined me for this episode. We did this in two parts, and I have spliced them together. So this is a longer episode today. Uh, But I hope you enjoy the banter, the theology, the scripture, the history, all of it behind Holy Saturday. So we're going to get into the episode now, and I'll be with you at the end. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Once again, this is Scott with you for our second live show on the Saturday School of the Bible, this Holy Saturday. And uh, I am joined for this segment by my esteemed colleague, good friend, and all around just handsome man, Colin Redmond. Good morning. How you doing? Apples one Saturday morning. Did you get my joke? What? No. Oh, when I was growing up, there was this, on Saturdays, you had Disney's One Saturday Morning. So it's mm. K-Apple's One Saturday Morning. Okay. It's a bunch of good shows. Hey, there you go. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. I agree, Colin. It is K-Apple's One Saturday. It's a good day for shows. It's a good day to be a K-Apple pilgrim. So anyways, Colin, how you doing, man? Doing really good. Yeah? What are you uh, up to on this holy Saturday? On this holy Saturday, we are... Just getting ready for Easter. Tomorrow in the amphitheater. Yeah. 10 o'clock. We're doing some tests in the sound system and in the video system. Nice. And, uh, yeah, just getting ready for that. Good. And yesterday, Good Friday service was awesome, of course. Yeah. Really enjoyed that a lot. So praise the Lord. And uh, always, always good to look at everything the Lord is doing and has done for us. I noticed that that the term good... Uh, Brian Fowler. Yeah. I'm sure you guys remember Brian. Posted on Facebook yesterday just a little blurb about Good Friday and Mm -hmm. where we get the term Good Friday. Because nowadays the term good is kind of tamped down. It doesn't really mean what it used to mean. And uh, so when we say Good Friday, it just kind of sounds whatever. When in fact, what it really means is Holy Friday. That's the the meaning of just goodness and holiness of of the Lord laying down his life for us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly right, Colin. And uh, speaking of Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Holy Saturday, uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break, uh, Colin, on this segment and the next segment. You'll be joining me for that one as well. So I appreciate your time. Um, and instead of talking about a certain theological thing, we've been talking about the church uh, lately, and we'll resume that next week, Lord willing. <clears throat> and we've been talking about different spiritual gifts and just kind of demystifying and understanding all that stuff. And Lord willing, next week we'll continue that. But Colin, for these uh, final two segments of our portion today, 
I kind of thought it'd be fun to just take an in-depth look at Holy Week. Uh, you know, one thing I've noticed, at least for me, you know, being a a Christian who is identified more with the Protestant branch of uh, of our faith, is that a lot of times we uh, we don't really know where some of the church traditions come from. Like, for example, the whole Lent thing, and this is Holy Week, and sometimes it's easy to look at these things and be like, "Man, where did this come from?" Uh, why do certain segments of the body of Christ celebrate these things uh, more than we do, etc., <clears throat> etc.? So I thought it'd be kind of fun, uh, Colin, at least for us, to uh, to just take a look at some of this stuff and uh, and just check out Holy Week and what it's all about and the different days and different church traditions that go along with it. So, what do you think, Colin? Let's roll. Let's roll. There you like go. that stone. That's right. That we'll be celebrating tomorrow. The stone is rolled away and he is risen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Love it. Okay. Well, uh, as this is Holy Week and today is what they call Holy Saturday, it is also in certain church traditions, the final day of Lent, uh, that 40 day period leading up to Easter Sunday. By the way, Colin, did you give up anything for Lent? No, no, I don't really know what Lent is, really. Well, I'm glad, because we're going to talk about some of that. I mean, I've heard of it. My cousins are Methodists, Okay, but I don't practice it. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, anyways, uh, I'm glad that you said that, because we're going to be talking about some of this stuff. Um, So, real quick, Holy Week, Colin, is the week that begins with Palm Sunday, which was last Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And it ends, again, according on which church tradition you go with, uh, it ends on... Holy Saturday, which would be today. And according to certain traditions, Easter Sunday is not technically a part of Holy Week because Easter Sunday marks the beginning of yet another uh, liturgical season in the church of 50 days uh, leading up, I believe, to Pentecost. And so, but in the West, where we are, Holy Week uh, is the final week of Lent. So just so you know, Colin. Now, uh, Colin, as far as Holy Week goes, uh, the whole thing about when it got its start and all of that, uh, the earliest recorded uh, records that we have of Holy Week being observed as an entire week uh, date back to the mid-3rd and 4th centuries in a set of documents called the Apostolic Constitutions. Now, uh, this was a work of eight different treatises dealing with different aspects of Christian and church life. It dealt with such things as discipline, worship, doctrine, etc., etc. And basically, Colin, what it was, it was primarily uh, an ancient guide for the clergy. So this is about the same time that the canon of scripture is being finalized uh, and all that stuff. So people needed, you know, different things to help them along with practical areas of ministry. And so that's what the apostolic constitutions were. And um, basically it purports to be the work of Jesus' 12 apostles, um, although there is no substantial proof for that. And so personally, I don't think that that assertion is to be trusted. I don't think these were writings from the original 12 apostles, uh, even though some claim them to be. And then also, Colin, another thing is that some of the documents actually contain elements of heresy, uh, most notably that of Arianism, which you probably know what that is. I've talked about it in church history before, uh, which is basically uh, the, the heresy that claims that Jesus is not equal to the Father, which is you know, blasphemy, and we reject that, of course. Um, so therefore, uh, the apostolic constitutions were rejected as part of Scripture 
during some of the church councils in the third and fourth century there. Um, however, it is an interesting collection of historical documents because it kind of gives us an insight, Colin, into the state of religious life and spirituality in the third and fourth centuries. So that is where uh, we have the earliest known allusions to Holy Week being celebrated as an entire week. And um, basically, I, I found a quote online that talks about this. And talking, Colin, about the apostolic constitutions, it says in this text, abstinence from flesh is commanded for all the days, while for Friday and Sunday, an absolute fast is commanded. So that's why uh, certain parts of the church you'll see will, will um, not eat meat during Holy Week at all. They will fast from meat. And Good Friday, which was yesterday, and Easter Sunday, which is tomorrow, uh, some parts of the church will do a complete fast on those two different days. And that goes back to just church history and church tradition and all of that. So if you've ever wondered uh, why some parts of the church or maybe some of your family and friends refuse to eat meat during Holy Week or they fast Friday and Sunday of Holy Week, well, there you go. There's your reason why, Colin, because I can tell you're looking at me with inquisitive eyes. It's interesting. Sometimes we, in the 21st century American evangelical church, (laughs) that's us. we have this proverbial anti-law attitude towards things. And the church, in a lot of parts of the world, have a lot of traditions, have a lot of um, ideas and and just practices that they do that maybe aren't demanded in Scripture explicitly, but are done out of respect uh, for the Lord. Yeah. And I think Absolutely. That, that it's good for these for these societies and, and cultures that do that, that we, we, we not judge them. Right. Absolutely. In a negative way. If if they if they feel the Lord pressing them to to fast and to withhold themselves from certain things for this week, I yeah. think more power to them. As long as they're doing it for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Exactly. And out of respect and reverence for him. Absolutely. And so, yeah, we may not practice those things here in the church today, but I think that if, if some other people want to do that, that, yeah. that, they, that, that they surely well can. <clears throat> Absolutely, man. I, I fully agree. And uh, that kind of gets back to the heart of why we're talking about this stuff, you know, um, it's just so we can kind of get a greater appreciation you know, for the traditions and the history of our faith as it has been expressed throughout the last 2,000 years and, uh, and just learn some of these things and, and, you know, maybe learn from some of these traditions that, again, are not commanded by Scripture, of course, so we're not bound in any way to practice them. Uh, but it can also always add a richness, you know, and a depth to our faith, <clears throat> you know. Um, so, Colin, good thought. I like that. So, uh, moving on here, um, there has been speculation, Colin, that Emperor Constantine, you know, the emperor who purportedly saw the sign of the cross in the sky, defeated a bunch of people militarily, and then took over Rome, took over Rome, became a Christian. Again, we've talked about that Constantine's conversion. No one really knows if it was genuine or not. Uh, But anyway, uh, speculation says that he issued a decree that all business should cease during Holy Week and also for the week following. That uh, Constantine's desire was to set apart Holy Week and the week after uh, which would be this upcoming week, kind of a set apart weeks for the glory of the Lord and that people should not be doing business and, and all of those things. Um, however, certain historians think that that's kind of doubtful that he did that. 
So there you go. Just thought I'd throw that out there for you, Colin. Yeah. yeah. He, he did legalize Christianity in the yes. Roman Empire. <clears throat> yes. Yep, absolutely. And then some argue that that's actually when the church began to, a downward spiral. <laughs> it was once it was legitimized by the state, which is a whole other show and a whole other topic. Um, but mm-hmm. maybe we'll get to that some other time. But anyways, um, there is, Colin, an ancient document called the Codex Theodosianus. And that was a compilation of laws uh, that were given under Christian emperors of Rome from the year 312 and onward. And that explicitly said that all business related to the law should cease for those 15 days for Holy Week and the week after, and that all courts of law should have their doors closed during those two weeks. So we see even in the uh, ancient Roman Empire, uh, we see some of these Christian emperors and things happening. uh, And we see that the church's traditions and weeks were given a place of esteem in the empire, as we're talking about with Constantine. Uh, now, uh, amongst the days of Holy Week, you know, because there's obviously Palm Sunday leading up to Holy Saturday, uh, Good Friday was kind of the first one to rise to prominence, for lack of a better term. That was one that kind of first became recognized, where the church celebrated, you know, the crucifixion of the Lord, of course, you know, and remembered what he did for us on the cross. Um, the second day to rise to prominence was called, Colin, the Sabbatum Magnum, or Great Saturday, which would be today. Great uh-huh. Saturday. Yeah. Maybe I'll start saying Great Saturday instead of Holy Saturday. Uh, but anyways, uh, it is on Holy Saturday that the more liturgical churches have practiced and still in our present day do practice certain traditions as a part of what is known as the Easter Vigil. So it's during this vigil uh, that people are baptized and adult catechumens, and a catechumen is someone who's being instructed in Christian doctrine with the end goal of being baptized into the church. Um, that's prominent much more in Eastern Orthodox churches and I believe the Catholic church as well. Uh, but anyway, it's during these Easter vigils, these celebrations that begin at sundown on Saturday, Holy Saturday, uh, where these things happen. Uh, you know, They're received into full communion with the church, prospective members, And uh, it's typically held in between sunset of Holy Saturday and sunrise of Easter Sunday. And it's the first celebration of the resurrection of our Lord uh, in these more liturgical churches. Um, Now, in the Lutheran, Anglican, and Roman Catholic churches, which are the liturgical, traditional Western churches, uh, the Easter Vigil is the most important service and the most important Mass that partake of the Eucharist of the entire year. Um, and in the Eastern Orthodox churches and other Eastern branches of the church, the celebrations of the Easter Vigil are also uh, the most important on their church calendar year. So no matter which part of the church you find yourself in, uh, whether Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, uh, this is just about the most important time of year, you know, so, which is cool. I think that's fitting where we celebrate the death and resurrection of our Lord and our redemption that he purchased for us. Yeah, this is the reason he came. That's it, man. This is the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Now, Colin, uh, I grew up Assemblies of God. You grew up Baptist. So I don't know if you grew up with a sort of the traditional sunrise service on Easter morning. No. No? I didn't either. I can remember. (laughs) I didn't either. Um, But I've, you know, a lot of people I know in a lot of churches, they do kind of a traditional sunrise service Easter morning. They get up really early and have a service as the sun is rising. Uh, that tradition was initiated initially by the Moravian Church in the year 1732. Uh, they began their Holy Week celebrations on Palm Sunday, and the whole thing culminated um, 
in a sunrise service on Easter morning. And of course, the Moravians were the church uh, there in you know, Europe, and they were kind of like the first uh, massive missionary sending movement back in the 1700s, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, which is a cool name. <laughs> say that name 10 times. <clears throat> right? I dare you to say that name 10 times fast. Von Zinzendorf. <laughs> von Zinzendorf. It's a strong European name. Uh, but anyway, they were kind of the, uh, the, the first massive missionary movement church you know, that we have in, back in the 1700s. And so they kind of began this tradition of a sunrise service on Easter morning. So that's where that comes from, in case you've ever wondered. Cool. Yeah. So there you go. So, Colin, uh, we have, let's see. Oh, man, I got a lot of notes left. Good grief. So, let's, uh, Colin, to finish out this segment, this is just going to be like a two-part show. So, we'll just sort of... I just was... Unless you have any other... I want to hear some more thoughts of yours, though. I don't want to just talk I was thinking about it, and I remember from history that when the Roman Empire was, quote-unquote, Christianized... Right. ...that the poly theistic religion that that had once been the main driving force for religion in the Roman Empire it was disbanded by the following empire or emperor after Constantine mm-hmm. and he he not only legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire but he forced everybody to become Christian <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and uh, quote unquote of course yeah uh and I guarantee if you hold a gun to someone's head or a knife or a sword, most people will get baptized and profess to be Christian. Right. Which the conquistadors did the same thing with the indigenous peoples of you know, Central and South America. It's just mm-hmm. awful. Right. You know, forced conversion. It's like, come on. But when the Catholic, or Catholic, when the, when the empire was Christianized, <clears throat> there was already an existing religious structure in the Roman Empire. They had temples. They had priests. Right. They had... Just an already organized religious structure in the whole of the empire. And the thing about the Roman Empire, unlike a lot of other empires, as the Roman Empire was growing and expanding, the Romans didn't, when they took over a country, when they took over a people group, they didn't force that people group to reject their cultural values. Right. What they did was kind of assimilate those cultural values into the Roman Empire. Exactly. So that's why they call it the Roman Pantheon, because there's many, many gods from many, many different cultures. Yep. So it created this melting pot, like we call America, but this melting pot of (laughs) cultures is what the Roman Empire was. Yeah, absolutely. And when... The emperor made it Christianized. There was all these kinds of holidays and and different events and and different things that uh, that were pagan mm-hmm. in the in the culture. Yep, there was holidays and events and gatherings and different things that were not Christian by any means. Right. So when the Christians took over the religions, <clears throat> a, a Roman priest was actually called a vicar. Hmm. There you go. Which is where we get right the name for uh, Catholics. Yeah, the vicar of priests. The vicar of Christ. The Pope. Yeah. And uh, so, just a quick little ditty there for you. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, absolutely. The Romans ended up for uh, changing these holidays into Mm -hmm. quote-unquote Christian holidays. Right. Like um, Halloween and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, But there's all kinds of little weird... If you go to other countries... You will see like these yeah. weird holidays where it's a combination of yep. totally like 
ungodly things with Christian yep, symbols. Absolutely. And it's like, where do they get that holiday from? Absolutely. And that's where it comes from, is, yep. is this meshing mm-hmm. together of Christian values with with pagan culture. Right. And uh, it's an interesting fact. It is, yeah. Um, it's interesting to look at. But it made me think of that, where where mm-hmm. a lot of these holidays right. uh, come from, the fact that we celebrate these days. Yeah is because of the Roman culture trying to yep. appease the the, right. the existing culture <laughs> yep. by saying, oh, we won't take away your holiday. We'll just make it a Christian holiday. Yeah. Of course, Easter's not one of those. But, no. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the name Easter, we'll talk about that in our next segment, has roots in that. But, I mean, obviously what we're celebrating is, you know, much older than, uh, you know, any pagan holiday. In fact, you could make the argument since Christ was slain from the foundation of the world that what we're celebrating is timeless. And I would make that argument. It's, so, it's eternal. Eternal, it's, yep. I mean, God God becoming man and dying you know, for his creation. It's just so beautiful. So Covenant wonderful. of redemption. That's right. Love it. So, yeah, absolutely. Colin, good thoughts, man. Um, I look forward to getting into that stuff on our next segment together, which will be uh, coming up pretty soon here after J. Vernon McGee. Um, So as to get through a little bit more of our notes, let's really quickly talk about uh, a couple of the days of Holy Week and just uh, point that out, and then we'll be on our way after that. So uh, call on the seven days of Holy Week are, again, Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday right before Easter Sunday. And then Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, which is more of a silent day, also called Spy Wednesday, and we'll get into that. Uh, Maundy Thursday, we'll get into that word. Good Friday, and then Great or Holy Saturday, and then, of course, Easter Sunday is the culmination of all that. Um, so, Colin, on, uh, on Holy Monday, uh, and this is coming more from like kind of what the Catholic Church traditionally has done on these different days. And uh, just so we get some insight into church traditions and, and some fun things that happen there. On Monday, the gospel tells of the anointing uh, by, by Mary of Jesus at Bethany in John chapter 12. And, uh, and so that's what is kind of read um, from the gospel story on Holy Monday. And that's what's celebrated. You know, Jesus was anointed by Mary. And we know that story, of course. On uh, Holy Tuesday, the gospel reading is, uh, is the one from John 13 that recalls the, uh, the foretelling at the Last Supper of Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial of Jesus. And so they'll read from the gospel of John where Jesus predicts that Judas will betray him and that Peter will deny him. Um, although in some, uh, in some uh, Catholic traditions they read uh, from the Gospel of Mark instead. But anyway, that's kind of what happens on Holy Tuesday as far as the the scripture reading. And then Holy Wednesday, Colin, and also known as Spy Wednesday, which we'll talk about, um, the Gospel reading tells the story of Judas arranging his betrayal of Jesus with the high priests from Matthew chapter 26. And for that reason, the day is sometimes called Spy Wednesday because Judas uh, betrayed one of his closest friends, kind of a double agent, so to speak. And so that's why sometimes in church tradition, that day is called Spy Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Anyways, I think it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Holy Thursday, or it's called Maundy Thursday. Now, I always wondered what in the world is up with the word Maundy, M-A-U-N-D-Y. Obviously not a normal English word that we throw around in our everyday <laughs> vocabulary. <clears throat> um, 
basically Maundy comes from a word that means commandment. And so that's what Maundy Thursday means. Now, on that day, the private celebration of the Mass is forbidden in the Roman Catholic Church. And what they do instead is they call the Evening Mass of the Lord's Supper, which inaugurates the following three days known as the Easter Tridum, uh, which is Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. Now, on Maundy Thursday, the commandment they're celebrating is where Jesus said, you know, he gave his disciples a commandment, as I have done to you, so do unto one another, where he washed their feet in the upper room at that final Passover that he had with his disciples. And so that's the commandment that is being celebrated on Maundy Thursday. And so sometimes even today in the Catholic church, the priests will wash the feet of 12 men commemorating when the Lord washed the feet of his 12 disciples. And so that's where we get Maundy Thursday to obey his command, to love and serve one another. Hmm. And then good Friday, um, for, again, the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglican churches, uh, which includes like the Episcopal Church in America, the Church of England, uh, Good Friday is a fast day. Uh, some of the Western Catholic Church practice is to have only one full meal with a couple of small snacks uh, together on that day. And uh, anyway, so that's interesting. And then, uh, of course, there are uh, different parts to uh, Good Friday. Uh, You know, um, some of the Roman Catholic churches do where they have the liturgy of the word, where they read portions from Isaiah, Hebrews, and John. Uh, They do something called the veneration of the cross, where the congregation will be on their knees, and then the priest will very solemnly unveil a crucifix in front of the congregation, and they will venerate it, worship and stuff on their knees, Um, and Holy Communion, where, you know, of course, they celebrate the Mass, the Eucharist. And so that's what happens in a lot of traditional churches. And then one other thing, Colin, here, they'll also do something sometimes called the Stations of the Cross, where they have the different parts of the gospel, you know, where Jesus was beaten, where he was scourged, uh, the crucifixion, of course, you know, the, the crowning of thorns, all these different things. Uh, and it's interesting because Colin, Pope John Paul II, uh, he used to lead a prayer every year on Good Friday through the Stations of the Cross from the Roman Colosseum. Right there in smack dab in the middle of the Colosseum. And in his younger years, uh, before health and infirmity took away his ability to do this, he actually would carry the cross from station to station while doing these prayers. So kind of something interesting happening in Italy there that used to happen every year uh, in the Colosseum. And I think, and again, you know, whatever your thoughts on the Catholic Church may be, I think it is cool, though, that, you know, he was celebrating, you know, the, the work of Christ in the very place where the pagan emperors used to brutally sacrifice thousands of Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of how, you know, God always has the last laugh. The so. triumph of the gospel. That's right, man. Amen. Absolutely. Well, Colin, we're going to close this one off and uh, we'll be back for our final uh, show of the day, our live show. And we're going to just continue on Colin talking about some of the history and traditions of Holy Week in the church. So thanks for joining me, man. You bet. Yeah. Well, hey, good morning again, everyone. This is Scott, joined with Colin Redmond still. Hello. Hey, buddy. And uh, as we started last segment, Colin, we are doing a two-part thing here, kind of just on the history and the traditions of Holy Week and what it's all about, uh, just so we can gain kind of a greater understanding and appreciation for uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ who celebrate things a little differently than we do and <clears throat> and just some of the richness of our faith throughout the, the centuries and the millennium. So... And uh, yeah, so Colin, we left off uh, talking about Good Friday, which was yesterday, where uh, there's a lot of tradition, fasting, a lot of things happening uh, within some of the more liturgical churches. And so 
Uh, we finished up talking about how Pope John Paul II used to lead prayer every year through the Stations of the Cross at the Roman Colosseum, and how he even used to carry the cross from station to station when he was a younger man. Um, and I just, like we said, we thought it was kind of cool that, you know, in the place where pagan emperors and kings would uh, murder thousands and thousands of Christians and innocent people, you know, 2,000 years later, the cross is being carried through the Colosseum and the Lord is being honored and celebrated for his crucifixion and resurrection. So I think that's cool. God always triumphs. So yeah. And he, he's going to triumph yes. even more when he comes back. That's right. He is on the throne. So, <laughs> all right. Amen. Well, Colin, uh, now we're going to talk about sort of the traditional Holy Saturday, which is today. And the Capel Holy Saturday School of the Bible. See what I did there? That's kind of... Disney's or <clears throat> Capel's one holy... One Saturday, Saturday morning. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Disney's. Probably not Disney. I don't think they celebrate Holy Saturday. But uh, <clears throat> anyways, so Colin, in uh, some of the more traditional places in the church, uh, the church waits at the Lord's tomb in prayer and fasting, meditating on his passion, which means suffering, uh, by the way, like the passion of the Christ and the passion that you hear some of these older things, passion meant suffering back then. It didn't mean passion like we think of today. So just in case you ever wonder why they called Mel Gibson called this maybe the passion of the Christ. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyways, just want to throw that out there for you. Um, where, you know, so they'll, they'll wait at the Lord's tomb in prayer and fasting, meditating on his passion and death and his descent into hell and awaiting his resurrection. Uh, the church abstains from the sacrifice of the mass with the what they call the sacred table left bare until after the solemn vigil. And then they begin the celebration, the joyous celebration, uh, after sundown on Holy Saturday, where they begin celebrating Easter, the resurrection of our Lord. And they celebrate with joy. And then Easter Sunday marks the beginning of a 50-day period of time leading up to Pentecost, where they there's celebration, feasting, joy, all of that. So... We see the 40 days of Lent, which are more of like a sort of a fasting, solemn period of time, followed by the 50 days of celebration. So anyways, uh, like we said, they uh, call in, and this is something I want to talk about because now we're kind of getting into Easter Sunday, which will be tomorrow. And uh, what they do, Colin, is that they have the Easter vigil, which usually lasts from three to four hours and is made up of four parts. And uh, really quickly, I want to kind of go through these and then maybe tie them into the word a little bit. Um, So they begin with what is called the service of light, where the congregants gather in the unlit church and the priest blesses the lighting of a new light, which symbolizes Jesus' resurrection and the fact that the Father has brought light and salvation to us through his Son. And of course, we know the classic verse where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You know, and I love that. So great, man, how the Lord has given light to us. He's given us salvation. He's awakened us out of our dead state and uh, made us alive together with him. And uh, that is celebrated in this, you know, this sort of tradition of lighting these candles. And we actually do that here at Applegate on Christmas Eve. We celebrate the light coming to the world, you know, by lighting candles, Colin. Yes. So. The father of lights. There you go. From whom comes every good gift. So. And then after the service of light, Colin, they have what is called the liturgy of the word. And that contains seven readings from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. 
And among those, uh, in the Old Testament readings, they include the account in Exodus 14 of the crossing of the Red Sea. And they do that because, as the Apostle Paul said in, my goodness, was it Romans, Colin? I can't recall off the top of my head, where Paul said that the Old Testament uh, stories serve as an illustration for us and that the Red Sea was like a foreshadowing of baptism. Yes. And I can't remember if that was Romans. I know that the Apostle Paul wrote that. And uh, so the Catholic Church and other more liturgical churches um, will read Exodus 14, kind of showing it as a, as a foreshadowing of baptism. And then uh, after each Old Testament reading, uh, they read or sing a psalm, which is kind of cool. And then uh, they sing the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which is kind of where we get that Christmas song. Uh, what's the song? It's Gloria, you know, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, da 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 what song is that? Do you know? I can't remember. I'm blanking. Gloria? <laughs> I don't know. I am, man, I am, wow. I'm definitely a Protestant. I don't know my church tradition very well. I am completely blanking on that song we sing at Christmas all the time. Are there any other words to it, or is that it? Angels we have heard on high? Angels we have heard on high. I think that's what it is. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I was. I think. I can't yeah, I, remember. No, I think you're right. Okay, man, my goodness. We got like eight months till Christmas, so. <laughs> Anyways. I don't know my, is that Latin, I'm guessing? Gloria and Excelsis Deo, yeah. I'm not Latin. Glo- <laughs> <laughs> Neither were the people that spoke Latin. They were European. <laughs> but Okay, anyways. Um, anyway, but yeah, Gloria in Excelsis Deo is Latin. Glory to God in the highest. <clears throat> um, Anyway, so Colin, again, as we talked about, Lent traditionally is more of a solemn time uh, in, in the liturgical church. During the season of Lent, they do not sing that song because that sing, that's thought of as more of a celebratory uh, song of joy. And during Lent, they kind of don't do that. Um, but they sing the song, they ring some bells, they read from the epistle of Paul to the Romans, and then they sing the hallelujah song, which I'm not exactly sure which one that is. Um, and then they read uh, in the Gospels about the resurrection of Christ. And so that's kind of more of a liturgical church way of doing things on, on, uh, for this Easter Sunday vigil that begins at sundown on Holy Saturday, which is tonight. And then they have what's called, Colin, the Liturgy of Baptism, where after they finish up reading from the Word, uh, they bless the water in the baptismal font. And then uh, any catechumens or candidates for full communion in the church are then initiated into the church by baptism and or confirmation, depending on which, you know, if you're Lutheran or, you know, Anglican or Catholic or Orthodox, you know, whatever, kind of depending on your tradition, your particular branch of the church, they do things differently. Um, but then it's kind of a celebration time, you know, an Easter Sunday, celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, um, celebrating the Lord, adding people to his church, you know, that we see in the book of Acts. Um, it's just a beautiful celebration and just thinking on what Jesus has done for us, you know, and then Colin, they have after that, the Holy Eucharist, which is the mass or what we would call communion, um, where they take the first mass of Easter day and, uh, all of that. And for whatever reason in, in church tradition, uh, they say that the Eucharist needs to be finished before dawn on Sunday morning. I'm not exactly sure why, but. Anyway, and so that's kind of a brief overview, everyone, of sort of the Roman Catholic and other uh, more highly liturgical traditional churches and their approach to Holy Week. Um, 
like I said, obviously there's things in here that we, a lot of us, you know, don't celebrate, but I think it's cool if nothing else, just to kind of understand, you know, uh, where others in the body of Christ are coming from and why they celebrate certain things the way they do. And so I think that can only benefit us in our walk with the Lord. And there are things that we can pull from this that are like, Hey, that's kind of cool. I like that. You know, um, not that of course we're bound religiously to do anything, but it is kind of nice to know just to sort of understand, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that is interesting that they don't do any joyous thing until Sunday morning. Yeah. And it's it's a reminder for us that there are, there's two ways that we can worship. And we can worship, like Pastor John said on Wednesday, we can worship in reverence and solemnness on our knees. And we can worship with joyous acclamation and yeah. shouts and dancing. Right. We, Absolutely. We may not see that in the Catholic Church, but... Yeah, maybe not shouts and dancing. Of course, there are charismatic Catholic churches, which is... That would be an, a fun service to go to. A Pentecostal Catholic Church. Yeah, that would oh. be... That'd be awesome. Anyway, I think that'd be kind of fun to check out, but... Um, but, uh, all right. Well, Colin, so that's kind of an overview of the traditional practices of Holy Week that we see... Um, now, Colin, uh, kind of to wrap up here, and then also we'll add some more of our thoughts, and I want to get some more of your thoughts. Uh, let's talk about, Colin, kind of the history of Easter. Now, there's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding Christmas, surrounding like Christmas trees and Christmas presents, and should we do this, should we not do this, Halloween. Uh, there's also controversy surrounding Easter um, because sort of the origin and the name of Easter. Now, Colin, there's a, a, I think it's a Baptist website called Got Questions. I have no idea what it's. I think it's. No, I think it's multi-denomination. Okay. Well, anyway, there's a cool website called gotquestions.org and uh, it's run by believers and they just, people ask all different kinds of questions and to the best of their ability, they provide scriptural answers. I don't agree with everything that they come with, but uh, for the most part, it's pretty solid and, you know, they're definitely you know, in the body of Christ as far as doctrine goes. So um, I looked up kind of the origins of Easter, and this is what it says. I'm just going to read this uh, because it'll be easier to do. So here's what they said. The origins of Easter are rooted in European traditions. The name Easter comes from a pagan figure called Eostre, or Eostre, who was celebrated as the goddess of spring by the Saxons of Northern Europe. A festival called Eostre, however you pronounce that in Old Saxon. I don't speak that, so I don't know. But anyway, it's the goddess Astre's earthly symbol was the rabbit, which was also known as a symbol of fertility. Originally, there were some very pagan and sometimes utterly evil practices that went along with the celebration. Today, Easter is almost a completely commercialized holiday with all the focus on Easter eggs and the Easter bunny being remnants of the goddess worship. In the Christian faith... Easter has come to mean the celebration of the resurrection of Christ three days after his crucifixion. It is the oldest Christian holiday and the most important day of the church year because of the significance of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the events upon which Christianity is based. Easter Sunday is preceded by the season of Lent, a 40-day period of fasting and repentance culminating in Holy Week, and followed by a 50-day Easter season that stretches from Easter to Pentecost. So, uh, again, not talking about obviously what we celebrate on Easter, but simply just the origins of the name of Easter and like the, the bunny rabbits and the eggs and all of that stuff, you know, it comes out of pagan roots. 
However, Colin, you and I were talking, I think, off the air a little while ago um, about how, as believers, you know, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And that's what it's about. So whatever you want to call it, Easter, Resurrection Day, I don't think the terms are really the important thing. The important thing is that we're celebrating the fact that as Christians, we're saved because the resurrection validated Jesus' claims to deity and messiahship and also are the proof that his sacrifice was pleasing to the Father and that now we are saved. You know, that's what we celebrate tomorrow. We should be celebrating every day, of course, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So... Amen. Amen. I think that's good. I think that, yeah, the, those those are like I was saying last show. These pagan yeah. traditions right. have found their way into Christian holidays because of the meshing of Christian tradition with pagan culture. So right, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, there you go, guys. There's kind of a. Just sort of a, a little history lesson there on sort of the origins of uh, the word of Easter and kind of the whole thing, why we have bunny rabbits and eggs and all of that. So <clears throat> I don't know where the eggs come from, though, Scott. Uh, yeah, just part of the whole old pagan celebrations <laughs> they used to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the plastic ones. Yeah, well, that's different pr- colors. Yeah, that's probably just so that retailers aren't only selling like real eggs that children break all over the house mm. and, you know. I do like dying eggs, so it was fun yeah, it's when fun. I was a kid. Absolutely. Especially when they're hard-boiled. That way, if you break them, it's not messy. Yeah. So anyway. See, there's your K-Apple School of the Bible practical tip for the day. Folks, you're welcome. Hard-boiled the eggs. Hard-boiled. They smell awful. They taste like death, but they're not messy when they break. And that's my opinion mm-hmm. about the taste and the smell. But anyways. <laughs> okay, so call them back on track here. Um, sort of in regards to how the early church celebrated Easter... And uh, how it came to be celebrated uh, at the time that it was celebrated. Uh, here's a quote that says, Christians fiercely disagreed over when to celebrate Easter. Believers in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, celebrated Easter, the, what they call the Christian Passover, on the day of Passover, the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. Victor, the bishop of Rome from 189 to 198, insisted that all churches had to celebrate Easter on a Sunday, which was which he said it had to be the first Sunday following the 14th of Nisan, which is the first Sunday following Passover. <laughs> and this is interesting. Victor threatened to excommunicate those Christians who observed Easter differently, but the Asian or Turkish custom continued. The Council of Nicaea in 325, which was uh, where Constantine did some of his stuff, and Colin, you know about the Council of Nicaea, where they uh, denounced certain heresies and established some church doctrine. Uh, The Council of Nicaea in the year 325 finally decreed that Easter should be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon in spring. And that is the practice today. So whenever the first full moon happens in spring, the very next Sunday is when Easter is celebrated. That's why the date of Easter varies from year to year. So this year it's April 5th. When I was in Honduras eight years ago, it was April 8th. I think one year it was April 24th. It's been in March before. All that fun stuff. So that's why it varies from year to year, Colin. And uh, so there you go, guys. There's kind of a, a brief history um, of Easter itself. And uh, again, as we talked all about Holy Week and different church traditions uh, that have sprung up and been in play over the years. So that's that. Now, Colin, with our last few minutes here, I kind of want to tie this together with some scripture and and uh, and finish our show out on that note. So... 
I was going to read the Matthew 28, uh, the resurrection. Please do, my friend. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of the, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, "Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen." As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Amen. That is so awesome. Oh, man. Absolutely. It is. There's there's a hidden gem in here Mm -hmm. that a lot of people don't really think about. And it attests to the truth of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And that is in this culture, in the Bible days here, women were not held in high esteem. It right. was men yep. were the bearers of truth. Yep. And the fact that the Bible chose, well, the fact that God chose to use women yeah. as <clears throat> the first yep. tellers of the resurrection yeah. just testifies to the fact that God wasn't afraid who to use. Mm-hmm. He used not, he wasn't viewing them as weak, but in the the culture right. that they were in, yeah. he was using the weak things of the world to confound Amen. the wise. Just like and Paul used, wrote. And yep. he used women to testify that Jesus was risen from the dead. Amen. Absolutely. I love that, Colin. That's right, man. Uh, God is, man, just so great, so wonderful. <clears throat> and again, Colin, like you said, had this been something that, you know, the writers of the Bible just sort of made up because of their cultural time and, and all those things, they would not have used women as the first bearers of the message of God's triumph over sin, death, and evil, and, you know, the recreation of all things, you know, mm-hmm. and the hope of our resurrection. They would not have used women to be the bearers of that message. Right. It would have been the big strong men, you know, like Peter, the, the seven foot, or I don't know how tall he was, but, you know, the big dude, you know, and all of that. But no, he chose to use something culturally at the time that was very taboo, you know, just like when, uh, when Jesus, you know, was born, you know, God became a man, you know, in human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. And he's, you know, the father sent the angels to proclaim this good news to the shepherds. You know, at that time, shepherds were, you know, the lower class sort of, uh, you know, dregs of society. Yeah. You know, again, God, it's so amazing, man, that the God of the universe, you know, from the time that he incarnated to the time that he died and rose again, you know, he identified with <clears throat> and came to the least of these, you know, in humility, you know, he could have come in all of his regal majesty and splendor, but he chose not to do that. Um, he came in humility, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just amazing. And it's so humbling. And we think calling that people like us, you know, just people who were dead in sin and, and depraved and without hope, you know, that God made us alive together with him by his spirit. You know, it's, uh, so I, I hesitate to use the word unbelievable because obviously we believe it, but I mean, it is it's just unbelievable. It's incredible. Like, wow, Lord, you've done this for us. You know, that's the power of the gospel. Amen. The 
power of God unto salvation for all who believe. I love it. Power of the gospel, man. So the resurrection is the proof. That's right. That the cross, at the cross, we were set free from sin. Absolutely, man. It's the proof of that. It's the vindication of Jesus' claims. And it's just so beautiful. So, man, all glory be to the Lord. Um, and uh, we are going to go ahead, Colin, and get off the air here. Colin, thank you. You bet. It's been a Lord pleasure. Bless you guys, and happy Easter. Amen. All right. God bless you, and we'll talk to you later. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with my good friend, Colin Redmond, uh, there from my previous church in Southern Oregon. And I hope you are really able to draw near to the Lord on this holy, silent Saturday as we prepare for Easter Sunday tomorrow, Resurrection Day, where we celebrate the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God, our Savior, is risen from the dead. And I pray that you will encounter and experience him in his presence in a special way tomorrow. Now, again, thanks for listening to the podcast. I would ask that you would go and rate the podcast and leave us a review on the iTunes store. You can also pick us up on the Spotify and Stitcher platforms as well. And spread the word. Tell your friends. Help get the word out. Uh, It's just nice for this podcast to be able to go out and to bless people and to encourage them in their faith. And that's what we're going for. So, again, as we prepare to celebrate our risen Lord tomorrow, may he meet you with his presence and with his grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.